Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication. Today, we're going to discuss Stephen King's third novel, 1977's classic, The Shining. Make sure you stay tuned next week as I chime in on the age-old debate of book versus movie. And just so you know, I do believe that there is a definitive winner in this particular argument. Stay tuned next week to find out. In the meantime, stick around for my review of the book that made you think twice before checking into a hotel. This is now the third time, maybe fourth time, that I've read The Shining. Um, it's the same edition that I've I've always read, um, and it just it brings me back uh, to to that first time. Um, and it's just it's interesting um, going back and and reading this this particular novel at, at different periods of my life. How I just as I get older and I, I understand things uh, a little bit more. I, uh, I, I just, I, I look at the novel differently. Um, I definitely looked at, at Jack Torrance a lot differently now. And what's interesting to me is that I, I first read it in between the, uh, um, the summer of my sixth and seventh grade uh, school years. And now as I record this, I am older than uh, Jack's age in the book, which just, wow, just really threw me off because when I'm a kid, he's an adult and, you know, he's a dad and, you know, I, I just expect him to be just that, that dad age, you know, and then now I'm, I'm older, uh, than him and I judged him a lot more than I had before because I expected more of him, um, because he's, he's not some, uh, just some faceless adult. He's, he's a peer, um, and, and I just have expectations for, for, you know, guys around my age and he, to me, he failed to live up to them. But anyway, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself in the, uh, in the review. But, um, so, uh, just note that, uh, when I make reference to, 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 to chapters and page numbers, I'm referring to the 1992 Signet paperback edition. So before we launch into our review, I'm going to read the Wikipedia synopsis in order to lay the foundation upon which I'll build my analysis. The Shining mainly takes place in the fictional Overlook Hotel, an isolated, haunted resort located in the Colorado Rockies. The history of the hotel, which is described in backstory by several characters, includes the death of some of its guests and former winter caretaker, Delbert Grady, who succumbed to cabin fever and kills his family and himself. The plot centers on Jack Torrance, his wife Wendy, and their five-year-old son Danny, who move into the hotel after Jack accepts the position as a winter caretaker. Jack is characterized as an aspiring writer and a recovering alcoholic troubled by past binges that prior to the story had caused him to accidentally break Danny's arm and lose his position as a teacher. Jack hopes that the seclusion at the hotel will help him reconnect with his family and give him the motivation needed to work on a play. Danny, unbeknownst to his parents, possesses telepathic abilities referred to as the Shining that enable him to read minds and experience premonitions. Dick Holleran, the chef of the Overlook, senses Danny's abilities and helps to explain them to him, giving Halloran and Danny a special connection. As the Torrances settle in at the Overlook, Danny sees frightening ghosts and visions. Although Danny is close to his parents, he does not tell either of them about his visions because he senses that the caretaking job is important to his father and the family's future. Wendy considers leaving Jack at the Overlook to finish the job on his own. Danny refuses, thinking his father will be happier if they stay. However, Danny soon realizes that his presence in the hotel makes the supernatural activity more powerful, turning echoes of past tragedies 
into dan dangerous threats. Apparitions take form, and the garden's topiary animals come to life. The Overlook has difficulty possessing Danny, so it begins to possess Jack, frustrating his needs and desire to work. Jack develops cabin fever, and the sinister ghosts of the hotel gradually begin to overtake him, making him increasingly unstable. One day, after a fight with Wendy, Jack finds the hotel's bar fully stocked with alcohol, despite being previously empty, and witnesses a party at which he meets the ghosts of a bartender named Lloyd. As he gets drunk, the hotel urges Jack to kill his wife and son. He initially resists, but the increasing influence of the hotel proves too great. He becomes a monster under the control of the hotel, truly unable to control his dark side. Wendy and Danny get the better of Jack, locking him into the walk-in pantry, but the ghost of Delbert Grady releases him after he makes Jack promise to bring him Danny and to kill Wendy. Jack attacks Wendy with one of the hotel's mallets, but she escapes to the caretaker's suite and locks herself in the bathroom. Jack tries to break down the door with the mallet, but she slashes his hand with the razor blade to slow him down. Meanwhile, Dick Holleran, the Overlook's head chef and telepath like Danny, receives a psychic distress call from Danny while working at a winter resort in Florida. Halloran rushes back to the Overlook, only to be attacked by the topiary animals and badly injured by Jack. As Jack pursues Danny through the Overlook, he briefly gains control of himself just long enough to tell Danny to run away. The hotel takes control of Jack again, causing him to violently batter his own face and skull with a mallet so Danny can no longer recognize him. And Danny tells him that the unstable boiler in the basement is about to explode. Jack hurries down to relieve the pressure as Danny, Wendy, and Holleran flee. Jack is too late, the boiler explodes and destroys the Overlook. Fighting off a last attempt by the hotel to possess him, Holleran guides Danny and Wendy to safety. The book's epilogue is set during the next summer. Halloran, who has taken a chef's job at a resort in Maine, comforts Danny over the loss of his father. So the novel is a classic, and as we'll get to it next week, the movie adaptation cemented Jack Nicholson as a star and is considered one of the most frightening films of all time. Um, there's really something about this story, about a family trapped in an evil house that's trying to break the family apart. Um, it's heartbreaking, it's tense, um, you know, you, you definitely feel the vulnerability for all three of the characters, especially Danny. Um, and Stephen King has been very open and honest about how much of himself he poured into uh, this novel, specifically around the, the character of Jack. And while he might not necessarily be a stand-in for Stephen King, um, the alcoholism and, and some anger issues uh, King was able to, to draw upon to, to really... Um, make this character come to life for, for good or for bad. So I'm going to, like I have with the other ones, uh, the other reviews, I'm, I'm going to uh, start by by looking at the, the characters um, because this is just a, a character-driven story. I mean, there's a lot of uh, scary things that happen, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a story of, of, of the family um, trapped within this house. So let's let's look at the characters. So let's, uh, let's start with Jack. Uh, so from the very first line of the book, uh, which is Jack's thoughts, um, we realize that uh, he has angry thoughts. From the start, King establishes Jack as a man with a deep, deep anger problem, barely able to keep it in check. As Allman, the source of his anger, notices. Uh, the anger is recalled through a memory of the time he broke Danny's arm, 
which is a symbolic break of trust, love and the future, because the bone might be reset, but there's no healing from that. No, no, not really. So um, King goes into detail describing the significance and symbolism of this break, and I'm going to read what King says. Um, you can follow me along on uh, page 17. He had whirled Danny around to spank him, his big adult fingers digging into the scant meat of the boy's forearm, meeting around it in a huge closed fist, and the snap of the breaking bone had not been loud, not loud, but had been very loud, huge, but not loud, just enough of a sound to slip through the red fog like an arrow, but instead of letting in sunlight, that sound let in the dark clouds of shame and remorse and terror, the agonizing convulsion of the spirit. A clean sound, with the past on one side of it and all of the future on the other, a sound like breaking pencil lead or a small piece of kindling when you brought it down over your knee. A moment of utter silence on the other side, in respect to the beginning future maybe, all the rest of his life. So as we'll as we'll see, um, that is going to haunt Jack, you know, because this this book is really all about the things that haunt us, and and in the Overlook, you know, it, it they, they manifest as ghosts, but but really it's it's the things, uh, you know, our mistakes uh, that we've made that that haunt us um, in life, and uh, in the case of Jack, it's his very real mistakes um, that that will have an effect long after he's gone, as will be explored uh, in The Shining, and many, many years later when Stephen King uh, gets around to writing its sequel, Dr. Sleep. So the first two times we meet Jack, he is distracted by angry thoughts. So is this his natural thought process, or has the Overlook begun to sink its claws into him? It should come as no surprise that just after we meet Jack, he's introduced to the boiler, which for all intents and purposes should be called Chekhov's boiler, for once introduced will be the mechanism through which King will destroy the Overlook. Furthermore, this object is a metaphor for Jack himself, a pressure cooker ready to explode. When they are left alone to care for the hotel, Jack begins to clear his mind through maintenance upkeep. While thinking of his play, he troublingly begins to tell himself that the actions that had led him to this point are not his fault, that he had not acted, but was rather acted upon. This denial and failure to accept blame is as dangerous an example of foreshadowing as any ghost or blood on the walls. Personally, I found Jack to be unlikable. I understand his issues with anger and alcoholism, but these are only masks that hide the jerk beneath. Is the Overlook working its way through him when he shakes Danny and screams at him not to stutter after the boy has gone into a trance? Understandably, you'll find aggression at the intersection of concern and terror, but I can't help but grow to actively dislike Jack. After all, after being given a job when he needed it the most, and with it a second chance, he decides to blackmail Ullman by threatening to divulge all of the hotel's dirty secrets. Is Ullman a dislikable man? Yeah, certainly. But is that enough reason for Jack to bite the hand that feeds him? It's a low moment for our character, and unfortunately will not be his lowest. Now keep in mind that these are not criticisms of King's demonstration of character traits. No one said that Jack had to be likable, and King has stated that he channeled all the anger he felt towards his children as a young parent into this character. Combine this with the writer's growing alcoholism problems, it's no surprise that Jack is a therapeutic outlet where King can channel all of his negative thoughts he might feel about himself, not unlike how method actors tend to lose themselves in their roles. 
Uh, we learn of Jack's past with his father, and I don't know if this was as much of a cliche at the time as it is now, that cycle of abuse, but it, do, it does little to create sympathy for the character. In fact, it makes him less sympathetic because don't we expect him to act better? I mean, it's, it's clear that Jack's anger issues are not a result of the alcoholism, but that the alcoholism was a result of trying to drown his anger issues. Now, unlike the movie, Jack knows that the Overlook is working on him, wearing down his defensives. It creates for a different type of fear, while the movie constantly creates confusion because its characters are never in the know and everything is a mystery, King gives Jack just enough information for him to be at blame for choosing to stay when he had the chance to leave. Knowing that if he had left the Overlook, he'd most likely wind up in the nearest bar, he is a character stuck between two unbeatable outcomes. The choice, combined with the helplessness in either situation, stay and possibly murder your family, leave and fall into a bottle, create a hopelessness within Jack, because although he might have a choice, he doesn't really have control over either option. Page 282 marks a turning point for Jack. While outside, slightly more free and clear-headed from the hotel's poisoned thoughts, when presented with this choice, he chooses the hotel. Much like Carrie White and Carrie, who consciously returns to the prom to enact revenge, Jack consciously, consciously makes the decision to stay within the hotel he knows has the evil intentions for he and his family. When Jack returns to the ballroom bar in the final act of the book, it is filled with people and the conversations that take place are no longer imaginary, as it was before. Lloyd informs Jack that the manager wants Danny. Jack's hurt at this, his ego bruised, realizing that it had never been about him. He swallows his pain and any chance at a hopeful future with a glass of gin. After dancing with a beautiful ghost woman, he meets Grady, the previous caretaker, in a scene that plays out almost word for word as it does in the movie. When Jack gives in to the pressure, surrenders to his anger, and becomes an agent of the hotel, his transformation is complete. The monster lurking within rises to the surface, screaming, face drenched with blood, unfazed by the fact he's trying to kill his wife or from the knife wound in his back. It's a terrifying image, and the concept is even worse that the husband, the supposed protector, can grow into this monstrous, um, solidifying why The Shining is such a powerful story. In real life, you don't have to worry about the ghosts that haunt your house but instead could very easily be plagued by the ghosts that haunt your marriage. Ultimately, Jack is completely consumed by the Overlook, who uses the mallet to destroy Jack's own face to prove to Danny that he isn't dealing with his father anymore. Um, then possessed, the, uh, the, the being um, that uh, has taken over Jack rushes down to the, the boiler to try and save the Overlook, but it's, it's far too late, and the body of Jack uh, explodes with the, the, the rest of the Overlook. And then we have Wendy. Um, we meet uh, Wendy right after Jack as she teaches her son as to why he should refrain from using swear words. It might seem like a small thing, but behind hides a deeper issue. The conflict between husband and wife that King establishes as surreptitiously as a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. Keep in mind that Danny had picked up the bad word from his father and it's up to Wendy to undo the damage and that will be the ultimate responsibility for Wendy having to undo the damage set out by Jack Torrance. King wastes no time establishing how reflective and observant she is as she muses on the perspective of a, of a child um, thinking about adults. She thought that to children, adult motives and actions must seem as bulking and ominous as dangerous animals seen in the shadows of a dark forest. They were jerked about like puppets, having only the vaguest notions why. The thought brought her dangerously close to tears again, and while she fought them off, she leaned over, picked up the disabled glider, and turned it over in her hands. Um, 
so that that sets the stage for um, you know everything that that's going to take place. You know, Danny. You know, Danny is just uh, picked up and tossed around by forces that he he really can't control. He can't control his parents. Um, he just only hopes that his parents are able to get along. And um, unfortunately, he has to see uh, his his parents' marriage turn into a nightmare before his eyes. That that puts um, everybody in danger. So immediately, uh, she is presented as a conflicted character, uh, stuck in a marriage whose husband's actions have harmed their boy and has driven them to Colorado. She maintains a bright face for Danny, but when she breaks down with the ominous conclusion of the chapter, I doubt that anyone can blame her. With her constant reminders for Danny to stay out of the road, it's clear that her goal is to keep her son safe, and the future conflict with Jack is foreshadowed with a recollection of the time that Jack had hurt Danny. So on page uh, 234, we have a great example of Wendy's strength. She accepts her mistakes, but does not dwell on them. Unlike Jack, who wallows in the past, she's proactive, determined to leave the hotel, and ready to murder her husband if he gets in the way of her son's safety. She believes Danny, acknowledging his abilities rather than ignoring them like her movie counterpart. And after Danny is attacked in room 217-217, she actively tries to get out of the hotel, stating that something in the hotel wants him. Knowing that she's in danger and trapped with an increasingly crazy husband, she begins taking a knife with her, which demonstrates her logic despite the surreal nature of things around her. It's a practical decision, unlike that of Susan Norton from Salem's Lot in King's previous work. She manages to bury the knife in his back in a heartbreaking intense scene of which Jack attempts to murder her with the mallet. Just as Jack is possessed by the dark energy of the hotel, fueling him when he wouldn't otherwise have the strength, she too is just as possessed but not of any external agency, possessed instead by a fierce resolve that will not allow her to see defeat. Uh, Wendy is a, a very strong character, and I'm glad that, um, you know, that, that she made it through this, this ordeal to, uh, you know, you know to, to pick up the pieces you know, and undo all of, of Jack's uh, damages uh, on Danny and, and herself. And then we have Danny. Um, so with Danny, King created a trope that you have seen repeated so many times, it's groan-inducing and sign uh, of an unimaginative storyteller at this point. But, but back then, at the time he was writing this, uh, the, the trope, which is that of the, the special child, wasn't really seen before. You know, I mean, we'd seen evil children as evidence from uh, Village of the Damned, uh, The Exorcist, The Omen, but, uh, but Danny was one of the first inclusions of, of that special child who was both the magnet for and only solution to uh, the dark entities that haunt whatever story they star in. You know, so since then, you know, we've seen Carol Ann from Poltergeist, uh, Andy from Child's Play, uh, Cole from The Sixth Sense, Aiden from The Ring, Dalton from Insidious, and, and many more, but, but Danny was the one that, that started it all. So, you know, just keep that in mind, you know, as we talk about this. Uh, you know, we've looked at Stephen Kingism's tropes that we see across Stephen King's own works, but let's not forget that, you know, he is the master of horror, and he did create a lot of these tropes um, that would be then taken and used uh, in different mediums. Everything that I had just described were, were movies, and this is a book, and, and he has been, you know, copied again and again and again in, in, in many, um, many different books by many different authors. But uh, with Danny, very effectively, um, very early on in the book, King places us fully into his point of view um, with the understanding that because of his age, there wasn't uh, so much that, that he doesn't quite understand. 
And he knows that he doesn't have to understand what these adult concepts mean to him, only what they mean to his parents. Uh, I mean, at one point, um, you know, he knows that that Jack is concerned about his his self-image, but, you know, Danny has no idea what that is. He just knows it as self-image. It's, it's one word, and it's a foreign concept. Um, and there is the fear that Jack and Wendy had of Danny having a hallucination. And again, Danny doesn't know what a hallucination is, and King spells it out, H-A-L, O-O-S-I-N. Um, so it's just interesting uh, the way that we're able to get information through Danny and really ground us in his reality and his ability to understand that his parents are concerned about something and just being able to to live off the feeling of what that is rather than the understanding of what it is is such, um, you know, exactly how I imagine a five-year-old must feel, you know, very much like how, how Wendy felt, how um, a child must is just at the, the mercy of whatever fate is in store for their parents and, and whatever the parents decide. It's very similar here. Um, the only concept that he fears is one that many children fear, and that's the poisoned word, and that's how he's described it, um, uh, of divorce. Um, and again, I, I had talked about on the first podcast uh, the authenticity of how Stephen King is able to write about childhood and capture voices and thoughts that are not his own. And King was in his 30s when he wrote this, so he's far removed from being five years old. And and yeah, he's he's probably able to you know look at you know his own children and, and be able to um, to draw from that. But there's a difference. Um, and and the descriptions here and the thought processes of of Danny, they seem very authentic to me. So I don't know if he's able to just go back into his own memory um, and pull out some of these feelings. Um, I don't know, uh, but he does a really good job. In Danny's first chapter, dedicated to him, we not only learn of his ability to see things, uh, which we're going to later learn will be called The Shining, but uh, we're actually going to experience the sensation when he has a vision shortly after the ominous visit from Tony. The scene is surreal, it's dreamy, it's just a mosaic of images that, that don't make sense to the first-time reader, but are more recognizable to anyone half-familiar with the story. The visions function as prophetic warnings, mysterious and dangerous, and with his first vision, we are introduced to one of the more famous takeaways from the book, and that is Red Rum. So through Danny, we learn that Dick Holleran's words of the ghosts not being able to hurt him uh, are not true. Uh, in fact, we learn this uh, the hard way uh, in a horrifying scene in which we, we meet one of the hotel's most famous ghosts who will haunt Danny in the days after the Overlook, uh, which is a little bit of a spoiler alert uh, for another book, uh, not The Shining, and famously brought to life in the Kubrick movie, and that is that of the waterlogged corpse of Mrs. Massey, who lurches after Danny, and after he follows Holleran's advice, closing his eyes and imagining the, the, uh, the ghost to go away, because it's only pictures in the book after all, uh, opens his eyes uh, to find out that she's still there and is then attacked by the creature, letting us know that these ghosts are not insubstantial anymore. Maybe they were once, but they're not anymore, and they can actually cause physical harm. This, of course, uh, is a tipping point in the novel, because once the Danny comes out of room 217 and Wendy sees the bruises on his neck, immediately she thinks that it's Jack, because Jack had previously broken Danny's arm. Jack, however, at the time was in the throes of a terrifying nightmare uh, in which um, 
he was bashing the radio hearing the the voice of his dead father telling him to kill his family uh and um this causes a, 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 a much greater rift between Wendy, who believes that Jack has done something, and Jack, who feels the frustration of his wife blaming him for something that, that he did not do and feeling that he'll never be able to crawl out of that particular rock based on what he had once done before, that there will never truly be forgiveness, and there certainly um, won't be any forgetting. Now, later, there's a scene in which Danny, uh, playing in the snow outside, uh, ventures into a concrete ring and whose opening is then buried in the snow. Uh, the area in which he's trapped feels very similar to me to the sewers beneath the town of Derry in the book It, complete with the smell of decaying leaves. And Danny even fears a spider might lurk underneath them. And I just wonder in, if these things, these images stick with with Stephen King um, and he'll and I don't know if he consciously thought of this particular scene when he wrote it or if something like this had happened to you know him before in childhood but it is just interesting um, because it is it's very very similar and it's also a, a great scene uh, because we we start to see the the um, the, the the results of of the the ghosts and getting stronger and uh, this is when the, the, the hedge creatures start to lurch towards him, and uh, the, he sees the, the arm come out of the, the, the concrete ring. It's just, it's, it's horrifying. It, it's just, I feel so sad um, for Danny, who is just five years old, and I sense the vulnerability here. It's, it's a great, great scene. Um, and it, it, this, among other things, causes Danny to call out uh, to Dick Holleran on page 306. Um, and, and of course we know that, that he comes and, uh, you know, to, to help out. And then Danny, towards the end, he ultimately confronts the thing that had corrupted his father, which is important because it, it, it makes the character, despite the fact that he's five years old, um, it, it makes him very proactive. Um, he, he's not a static character here. Um, his actions are just as important as, as those of, of anyone else, more so, actually, because the hotel wanted Danny, and Danny's the one that stands up to the hotel. He refuses to give in to the fear. He saves both his mother and Dick, once realizing the boiler is about to blow. He might have survived the events, but uh, sadly, uh, what child really survives this kind of abuse? You know, King might not have, you know, sat down to write um, a metaphor for child abuse or the negative effect of warring parents upon the development of a child. Uh, but make no mistake, these themes are inherently woven into the DNA of this novel and are later explored in, in Dr. Sleep. But, um, yeah, just because Danny got out in one piece, he didn't really get out in one piece. Um, he's going to be haunted for a long time, uh, you know, by ghosts that, that are different from, from the, uh, the ghosts in the overlook, but haunted by ghosts nonetheless. And, um, you know, thankfully he has someone to help him through it. And that's, that's Dick. And when we first meet him, he, he gives the family and us a tour of the kitchen, but more importantly, he names Danny's condition. And through Dick, we learn about the shiting. And uh, through Dick, we're, we're given the rules here, the, the rules that um, make it so when the rules get broken, we know that the wheels come off, and that's that the ghost can't hurt normal people, um, but can possibly hurt those that shine, and we later learn that that's certainly true. Uh, when we first meet him, Dick senses the possibility of danger, 
and gives enough hints to Danny, just enough uh, to know to let Danny know that um, he should be a little bit uh, weary, wary, wary of the hotel, but uh, shouldn't, you know, doesn't want to scare the kid. But he he definitely wants the kid to be a little bit nervous. Uh, and, and then he's out of the narrative for over a hundred pages, but returns when Danny calls for help. And King quickly establishes just how good of a man he is, knowingly risking his life to save the Torrances. King doesn't insult us by making him a superhero or, or some kind of action star, you know, but uh, instead opts to reveal that, that Dick, you know, while he may go off to save the family, would rather he had just never met them in the first place. It's a little touch, but it's an important touch because it's, it's very real. Because in real life, our heroes don't have to be perfect, perfectly shining uh, beacons of light you know they you know in real life i imagine that that people that you know do the right thing um and 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 are heroic you know their thoughts can reveal at times regret and annoyance and reluctance but it, it doesn't get in the way of their actions you know i mean we can do things even if we don't necessarily 100 percent want to do the things and it's just it's things like this that that make king uh, such a strong writer and it's important because once Dick does make the decision to go to the Overlook, we meet a few characters um, who help him along the way, from the encouraging words of the airplane passenger to the plow driver who tows out his car, gives him a pair of mittens and advice where to get a snowmobile. Um, he's given the snowmobile a new jacket and a ski mask to help on his final leg of the journey and a place to bring Danny at the end. So, I mean, what's important here is that these characters suggest that for all of the malicious evil of the Overlook, there's a force of good that exists that's as determined to get Dick to the family um, as the Overlook is to, to, to get Danny, you know. And more importantly, it reaffirms King's core beliefs of the goodness within humanity. And that this is all the more important to note uh, when the central conflict of the novel, uh, which results in spousal abuse, could very easily be the focus. But uh, this does not... Um, you know, basically what this does, I and mean, this this shows us that you know King, as I had said before, is an optimistic writer that just believes uh, in the good in people. Um, even you know, I mean, we we had seen in in this book just the the nastiness uh, that that's inside us, but um, you know, fortunately, you know, good does win at the end of the day. Jack loses, you know, his soul, but um, his family endures through the goodness um, of humanity. Now, there's another character here, and, and much like I had done in Salem's Lot, uh, I, I had given Salem's Lot um, uh, billing as a character, and the same thing with The Overlook. Um, and, and the more I think about it with uh, Stephen King's works, you know, and I'm going to say the same thing with Castle Rock, and I'm going to say it with Derry. These are characters, especially Derry. Um, but The Overlook, it's not a setting. I mean, this thing is a, it's a character, it's malicious, it's evil, it, it's predatory, it's sentient, uh, it's, it, it, it plays with people, it, it, it revels in others' misery, uh, it, it's horrible, it's a horrible um, thing, and it's a great villain for a Stephen King work. And we're slowly given a look at the history of the Overlook, from the story of Grady, the previous caretaker's ghoulish fate, to the elderly socialite's ghost in the bathtub. Um, very early on, uh, the reader is simultaneously screaming at Jack to turn away from this job while counting the minutes until the family is trapped within the hotel because that's when we know the fun's going to start. Uh, it has a horrid history that Jack learns of through the scrapbook in the basement, uh, the scrapbook that, that will infect his thoughts. 
um, you know, outside uh, the the overlook, hedge animals, um, uh, you know, come to life. You know, uh, hedge animals that are famous among book readers, but would be unfamiliar to anyone who had only seen the 1980 Kubrick movie. Um, you know, instead, uh, Kubrick opted to have a, a a a maze made out of hedges rather than hedge animals. Now, the the hedge animals uh, came to life. I had mentioned it a couple minutes ago in the scene with Danny, um, and when in which each time he looks away, they they come closer and closer, which is very effective. Much like the Doctor Who villains, the Weeping Angels, who can't hurt you if you look at them, but look away and it's all over. So just don't blink. Uh, the same applies to Danny in this scene, and it's a testament to King's ability, making even hedge animals scary. Um, it's so effective, and I, I thought of the, the 1997 or, or 98, whenever the, the TV movie of The Shining starring Stephen Weber was on. You know, I, I remember that there was a, like a CGI shot of the hedge animals moving, and that, to me, that's not scary, and that misses the point of why the, this scene works because it plays with your senses. You don't see them move, and it's not the movement that's frightening. It's the fact that when you look away and you look back, they're in a different place. So it's not the moving, it's the result of them having moved, okay? It's the, um, it's the fact that you are inferring that they moved, that's scary. And so just by seeing them move, that's, that, that to me is not frightening, that just, it, that that that's the reason why when I look at this and and seeing how it's done it makes me actually prefer on screen the uh, the maze from the the 1980 movie but the the hedge animals here um, are, are definitely effective due to the fact that that King knows how to to write um, a scene I mean this this to me is a testament to, to his ability as a writer because they're they're just hedge animals. Anyway, um, the sense of hopelessness for, hopelessness for our family continues um, when Danny looks back and he sees that the road is now blocked by the hedge animals. So even if they did want to leave, they can't. The, the hedge animals are, are going to stop them. Uh, so equally as terrifying as that scene is the scene in which the family is awoken in the middle of the night um, to the sound of the elevator working by itself. And that just gave me goosebumps. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you don't have to be in a hotel to imagine this um because unlike the hedge animals or the poison atmosphere of the hotel this i mean this really is just standard haunted house stuff but it's no less effective you know it's the same thing where i would talk to people that that didn't like the um uh paranormal activity and this is probably the only time i'll i'll uh um, make any sort of comparison between uh paranormal activity movies and and um the Shining, but a lot of people didn't think that it was scary, and I thought the first one was scary. I, I actually, I think I, I get a good scare out of all of them because I say, "Do you want to be woken up in the middle of the night by something pulling your your bed covers off? Do you want to be woken in the middle of the night by all of a sudden your door being open?" And everyone's like, "No," and I'm like, "Exactly," and that's why it's scary. So same thing here. It's do you want to be woken up in the middle of the night by hearing an elevator start to work? Uh, that implies that maybe there's someone else in the hotel. And even if there's not someone else in the hotel, that's even worse. So it's, you know, I mean, like I said, it's standard. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's the, the light going on, on when, it, when it shouldn't. It's, it's footfalls in, in the hallway when there shouldn't be. It's something being knocked over. But um, when something happens, when that something should not be happening, that's, that's what makes it uh, scary. But it's a scene that highlights Wendy's belief in her son. 
um, and, and of the evil in the hotel, even when her husband tells them otherwise because Wendy, having, getting frustrated with all of Jack's excuses, just jumps into the elevator and uh, pulls out the, uh, the confetti or the party favor. I don't remember what it was, but she just, her mind is picking up um, on, on the memories of the hotel and she keeps thinking to herself, she's like, why do I keep thinking that everyone's having a party? It's because it's a memory from the Overlook that's being imprinted upon her showing the, the increasing strength of the Overlook as they draw from Danny um, like, a, like a generator or a battery. And then on, on page 323, as we start to head you know, more and more towards the end, Danny tells Wendy that the Overlook has squashed Tony um, and refers to the inhabitants as the people in the hotel and more frighteningly, the things in the hotel. So it, it really does imply that there's something more to this hotel than just the ghosts that walk within them, that there might be malicious entities in there that are, that are worse than, um, than the, uh, the ghosts. And when the Overlook is able to shut down Tony, we see that um, through Dick's eyes when uh, Danny is trying to get a hold of Dick and Dick senses the line of communication just get cut um, right in half. So from this point forward, the, the ghosts just become more aggressive because the hotel starts to understand that its future is in jeopardy. Between the fact that it doesn't have Jack under as much sway as it once had over Grady and Danny's call to Dick, it has to stop playing with its meal and start actively hunting it down if it wants to ensure its survival. Uh, this meal, this family, it's trying so hard to break, it realizes, has the potential to destroy it once and for all, and ultimately it's exactly what happens. But because of this realization, the Overlook, um, you know, sends the Dogman to confront Danny. Now, the Dogman is uh, a sadly forgotten Stephen King villain, replaced in a way by the, the bear-costumed ghost in the Kubrick movie, a ghost who is only seen one time and adds a, uh, a disturbing flavor to the otherwise uh, dread-filled tone of that movie. The Dogman here, um, like Mrs. Massey and, and the hedge animals before him, uh, is a physical threat to Danny. And it's heavily suggested during the scene that this character is also a sexual threat to Danny as well, even if Danny uh, might be too young to realize that. Regardless, he's not a ghost that can be wished away. When Danny turns back, he's still there in the hallway, face smeared with bud, uh, blood, uh, just barking and, and growling. And it's just, it's, it's a very creepy image. Now, on an instinctual level, Wendy understands that the hotel needs Danny. Uh, Jack is explicitly told this by Lloyd, and Danny pieces it together himself. And the effect that Danny has upon the hotel just supercharges it um, and, and just charges up its uh, malignancy, allowing for the ghosts to take on more dangerous corporeal forms and increase, it seems, the radius of its uh, toxic atmosphere, as evidenced by Dick's approach on the snowmobile. So at the end, the uh, Overlook does everything it possibly can to survive. All right, it wanted Danny to absorb uh, his energy for what purpose we, we don't know to, to make the ghosts more powerful um, it, it's, it, it's never explicitly said I'm glad that it's not because I think that if we were given an ultimate reason it would be um, it would make it less scary because it would make the ghosts that much more understandable it would make it like they're, they're James Bond villains you know monologuing exactly you know what they want to do but um, the overlook in of itself is kind of like a vampire, right? And Danny has energy that it wants. Um, and it's not the only kind of vampire that Danny's going to come into contact with. We're going to see another sort of vampire called the True Knot um, in the sequel to this, um, Dr. Sleep.
So um, Jack is possessed. Um, Jack is sent after Danny. Um, Danny has the confrontation with, with, with Jack. Um, and ultimately our, our heroes are, are able to, to save the day. But I'm uh, going to read um, the, the death scene of the Overlook Hotel because it's, it's, it's masterfully done. Um, it takes place on uh, page 434, um, right before the next chapter, which is entitled Exit. Um, so for the, the, the section of text, uh, King just goes into detail describing how the fire is ripping through uh, each of the rooms that, that we had experienced as being haunted. Um, you know, the furnace is exploding, shattering the basement's roof beams. Um, but then I, I just, you, you get the actual thoughts of the Overlook, which is really important because um, Stephen King for the in, entire text has given us the thoughts of the characters um, set off in, in parentheses. I'm going to get to that in Kingisms later on. And we, we get the thoughts of, of the Overlook. Um, so flames belched out of the Overlook's five chimneys at the breaking clouds. And in parentheses, no, mustn't, mustn't, mustn't! It shrieked it shrieked, but now it was voiceless, and it was only screaming panic and doom and damnation in its own ear, dissolving, losing thought and will, the weapon falling apart, searching, not finding, going out, going out to, fleeing, going out to emptiness, notness, crumbling. The party was over. And then on, on 4.37, when uh, Dick and Wendy and Danny are escaping on the snowmobile, uh, it is described as the shutters which had covered the presidential suite's picture window. Shutters Jack had carefully fastened as per instructions in mid-October now hung in flaming brands, exposing the wide and shattered darkness behind them like a toothless mouth yawing in a final silent death rattle. And then it, uh, he goes on to describe how Wendy had her face pressed against uh, Holleran's um, back, and Danny um, has his face pressed against his mother's back. So Dick is the only one that sees the, the one aspect of, of the death of the Overlook. From the window of the presidential suite, he thought he saw a huge dark shape issue, blotting out the snowfield behind it. For a moment, it assumed the shape of a huge, obscene manta, and then the wind seemed to catch it, to tear it, and shred it like old dark paper. It fragmented, was caught in a whirling eddy of smoke, and a moment later it was gone, as if it had never been. So it isn't just, um, isn't just a, a haunted house, you know, it's an evil house, and it's important to, to actually see the moment when, when the evil dies and is vanquished. And it's so satisfying when the, the, the Overlook dies, because in, in Stephen King's um, Pantheon, of villains, the the Overlook is definitely right up there, and uh, you know, with for everything that has caused um, at, in its past to our characters, um, and and knowing that um, Dick and 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 Wendy and Danny especially won't be able to really get past this, um, you're you're glad that that it burns and it goes out as violently as it does. Now, with the characters out of the way, I want to get to the segment of the podcast that I like to refer to as Kingisms. Uh, these are the the tropes that uh, the patterns that you see again and again in Stephen King's writings. So I caught um, thirteen Stephen Kingisms in 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 The Shining. 
So the first of which um, is not the first time we've seen this kingism, and it's certainly not going to be the last time we've seen this kingism, and that is that of the protagonist as a writer. Um, as we saw last week with Ben Mears, um, we, uh, he was a writer, and we'll see it again in, in Desperation, um, in It, uh, in The Dark Half, um, in Misery, um, in Lisey's story. Lisey's story is going to be a little bit different, but it will um, focus heavily on, on well, the, the, the wife of a writer, but um, it's still about writing. And then we have uh, number two, which is the evil house. Again, second time in, in, in a row uh, we see another uh, Stephen Kingism. And uh, the evil house is something that we just see over and over again. Um, and as I did with Salem's Lot, I really want to make the distinction between the haunted house and the evil house. Uh, the Overlook um, isn't so much a haunted house. I might have referred to it as a haunted house before, but it, it really is just an evil house. It has ghosts, yeah, but there's just something about it. Um, it has an intent. Um, it's malicious. It's sentient. Um, it wants to do harm, not necessarily the ghosts that live within it. Um, much like the Marston house before it um, and the house on Nybolt Street afterwards in it, uh, it's definitely the trope, that of the evil house. And our third uh, Stephen Kingism um, is our mother-daughter relationship, specifically our strained mother and daughter relationship. This is now the third novel in a row where the main female character is, in, is affected by an unhealthy relationship with her mother. We first saw it with Margaret White and Carrie White, and then we saw it with Susan Norton and her mother, and now um, Wendy and her mom. Um, have a very strained relationship that negatively affects Wendy as a character. I don't know what Stephen King is saying here, but this is definitely three times in a row that we've seen it. Um, and then number four, our Stephen Kingism, uh, and it is basically blood that no one else can see. And Danny, at one point, he sees blood and brains on the wall, and uh, the, the blood looks fresh, and he looks away, hoping that when he looks back, the blood's going to be gone, but the blood is still there. And that plays out um, very, very similarly to a scene from It, um, in which uh, um, Bill sees um, blood in a photo album and looks away, and looks back, and the blood is still there. So I would say that that's a Stephen Kingism. Um, and then our fifth is the inclusion of informational texts. This is now the third time as well that um, we have seen this, uh, most notably in Carrie, but a little bit in Salem's Lot. And then with this, Jack has a scrapbook that tells us um, and him the, the history of the Overlook, but we, we get it through through news clippings. So that's something that, that he likes to do to just uh, spice up his, his narrative. And this is an important one, the next one, number six, because it is um, an oft-used Stephen Kingism, and that's uh, parentheses to give us character thought, and it's used to great effect in this particular novel. So specifically, the character's most secret or darkest thought in this novel, we, we get a, a really good glimpse into Jack um, and what the Overlook is doing to Jack through his thoughts, and they're set off in, in parentheses. Um, yeah, we're just given his thoughts this way. They're, they're little wasps of anger and hate contained um, for the longest time in little parenthetical bubbles. Um, but we know that those, those bubbles will break and the wasps will get out, and that's exactly what happens. Um, number seven uh, is Shirley Jackson. It is now the uh, second time in a row in which he references Shirley Jackson in The Haunting of Hill House. So I don't know if it's necessarily a kingism, 
but it's definitely second book in a row where he, he gives a shout out to this author. Number eight uh, is the mistrust of government. It's not a big Stephen Kingism, um, but it helped influence Salem's lot. Um, and it's expressed by one of the other passengers on Dick's plane on page 333. Um, so it's definitely something that he's feeling at the time, and, and later he, he's going to explore it again with both the Dead Zone and Firestarter. So that's, it's definitely something that we're going to see again. Um, in number nine, we have the slowly changing face. Um, so when Jack is speaking to Lloyd, Lloyd's face starts decomposing, um, and we're going to later see this with It, um, with Rose Matter, I believe, um, and, and just uh, other novels that he has. The uh, Someone understanding that something is wrong by the, the, the changing appearance of one of the characters. Uh, number 10 is a bit problematic. Um, and uh, it's the Southern uh, kind of slave caricature dialogue. Um, on page 384... Um, we, we have a little bit of Dick's thoughts. And in, in the parentheses, again, it, it, it says, Admit it, this here black boy has got at least one long stripe of yaller, and it runs right up his ever-loving back. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it at this point in my life, and I don't know if I'm just being sensitive, overly sensitive. Um, I, I don't think that Stephen King's racist. I want to get that out of the way. Um... But I don't know if it really gives us anything. And I really don't even want to make a comment on it, but I do know that this is something that, that we do see again and again, um, that of the, the, the caricature, um, old-timey slave um, dialect. And then with number 11, uh, we have the catchphrase. Uh, this is a big one for Stephen Kingisms. Stephen King loves giving his characters uh, catchphrases. And in this case, it's, it's time to take your medicine. Um, other classic catchphrases include Beep Beep Richie, M-O-O-N spells moon, Gimme what I want, it'll go away, uh, We all float down here, we all float, uh, The soil of a man's heart is stonier, um, And yeah, from Mr. Mercedes. Uh, so sometimes the catchphrase isn't necessarily repeated um, by our characters, but will go on to take a life of its own, um, such as, uh, they're all going to laugh at you, uh, here's Johnny. Uh, sometimes dead is better, and um, and you get busy living or you get busy dying. So uh, that's you know. So I mean, I'm kind of making the distinction there, but uh, but that's that's number eleven, the catchphrase. And then uh, number twelve uh, is is kind of similar to number ten in the sense that it uh, I don't really quite know how I feel about it, um, but that's racism to demonstrate the evilness of a particular character. And again, I do not think for a second that Stephen King is racist. Um, in fact, I think that he has a very, very kind heart. Um, but it, it's just, it's not enough for Jack to, to want to murder his wife and son, but he has to have to go and, and use the N-word um, and refer to Dick as a black boy. Um, so, I mean, just to hammer home that we're not supposed to like Jack anymore, uh, King, King really goes with it and uh, makes us, uh, if, if there's anything that's going to make us hate someone, it's racism. So I, I guess that's why he does that. Uh, this can be seen most recently in Mr. Mer Mr. Mercedes himself with the main character of Brady. Not the main character, but the antagonist. Um, I, I just, I find this to be, uh, I guess at the least, uh, unnecessary um, and at the most 
um, troubling, uh, especially how it's used in, in Mr. Mercedes, and, and we'll get to that um, when, when we talk about Mr. Mercedes. Um, and maybe that's why I'm being so sensitive to this, uh, because having just read Mr. Mercedes, uh, it's August, I read it in early July, um, I, I, was, I was really bothered by uh, the, the actions of this particular character and another character um, with the use of the, the, the number 10 trope, the, uh, the, the southern slave character uh, caricature dialogue. Um, so just kind of put together, it was still fresh in my mind, so when I saw it, I just kind of had a knee-jerk reaction. But we'll, we'll definitely continue that conversation uh, later. But I want to get to number 13. Our number 13 Stephen Kingism is going out with a bang. Uh, this is now the third book in a row uh, to end in fire or an explosion. So King likes to go big, that is for sure. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our Stephen Kingisms for the week. We had 13. That's a good amount. Uh, Stephen King's getting there. He's establishing himself. He's, he's, he's getting those patterns that, that we're going to be able to recognize and, and get to know him for. So I wanted to share a, uh, um, an excerpt from the book. Uh, every week I try and do this um, to just really distill what, uh, what the message is or, or, or what the, the, the most important um, theme is or, or what if, if I can boil down the, the premise in a particular quote uh, or small excerpt. And I, 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 did, I had three, um, two of which were descriptions of the, the Overlook um, as a monster, um, a, a knowing uh, creature. But uh, instead, I'm, I'm going to go with um, something that, that Dick says to Danny on page 446 that, that gives him hope, that gives uh, Danny hope after everything had occurred. And I think that this is the message, and again, going back to what I had said about Stephen King, how despite um, the dark places his characters might go, he ultimately believes in, in what we are able to do when we lean on each other and, and how we have to trust each other and believe in each other and be there for each other in order to get through these, these dark times and ultimately these books are, are love letters to humanity. This is, what, uh, this is what Dick says. Danny, you listen to me. I'm going to talk to you about this once um, and never again the same way. There's some things no six-year-old boy in the world should have to be told but the way things should be and the way things are hardly ever get together. This world's a hard place, Danny. It don't care. It don't hate you and me, but it don't love us either. Terrible things happen in the world, and they're things no one can explain. Good people die in bad, painful ways and leave the folks that love them all alone. Sometimes it seems like it's only the bad people who stay healthy and prosper. The world don't love you, but your mama does, and so do I. You're a good boy. You grieve for your daddy, and when you feel you have to cry over what happened to him, you go into a closet or under your covers and cry till it's all out of you again. That's what a good son has to do. But see that you get on. That's your job in this hard world, to keep your love alive and see that you get on no matter what. Pull your act together and just go on. So I've rambled on about The Shining for almost an hour now, but uh, I always like to conclude the podcast uh, with Stephen King on The Shining. Uh, so I, um, I'm going to read a, um, uh, an explanation um, that, that King kind of gives and puts the, 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 the Shining into a little bit more context um, from Wikipedia. So after writing Carrie and Salem's Lot, 
both of which are set in small towns in King's home state of Maine, King was looking for a change of pace for the next book. I wanted to spend a year away from Maine so my next novel would have a different sort of background. King opened an atlas of the U.S. on the kitchen table and randomly pointed to a location which turned out to be Boulder, Colorado. On October 30th, 1974, Stephen and Tabitha checked into the Stanley Hotel in nearby Estes Park, Colorado. Stephen and Tabitha were the only two guests in the hotel that night. When we arrived, they were just getting ready to close for the season, and we found ourselves the only guests in the place, with all these long, empty corridors. They checked into room 217, which they found out was said to be haunted. This is where room 217 comes from, from the book. Ten years prior, King had read uh, Ray Bradbury's The Velt and was inspired to someday write a story about a person whose dreams would someday become real. In 1972, King started a novel entitled Darkshine, which was to be about a psychic boy in a psychic amusement park, but the idea never came to fruition, and King abandoned the book. During the night at the Stanley, the story came back to him. Tabitha and Stephen had dinner that evening in the grand dining room, totally alone. They were offered one choice for dinner, the only meal still available. Taped orchestral music played in the room, and theirs was the only table set for dining. Except for our table, all the chairs were up on the tables. So the music is echoing down the hall, and I mean it was like God had put me there to hear and see these things. And by the time I went to bed that night, I had the whole book in my mind. After dinner, Tabitha decided to turn in, but Stephen took a walk around the empty hotel. He ended up in the bar and was served drinks by a bartender named Grady. That night, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk sweating all over with an inch of falling out of our bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in the chair looking out the window at the Rockies. And by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. Sometimes you confess. You always hide what you're confessing to. That's one of the reasons why you make up a story. When I wrote The Shining, for instance, the protagonist of The Shining is a man who has broken his son's arm, who has a history of child beating, who has beaten himself. And as a young father with two children, I was horrified by my occasional feelings of real antagonism towards my children. Won't you ever stop? Won't you ever go to bed? And time has given me the idea that probably there are a lot of young fathers and young mothers both who feel very angry, who have angry feelings towards their children. But as someone who has been raised with the idea that father knows best and Ward Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver and all that stuff, I would think to myself, oh, if he doesn't shut up, if he doesn't shut up. So when I wrote this book, I wrote a lot of that down and tried to get it out of my system, but it was also a confession. Yeah, there are times when I felt very angry towards my children and have even felt as though I could hurt them. Well, my kids are older now. Naomi is 15 and Joey is 13 and Owen is 8. And they're all super kids. And I don't think I've ever laid a hand on one of my kids in probably seven years. But there was a time. According to Guests and Ghosts, an internet article, the Stanley, which was built by Freeland Oscar Stanley, based on the designs of his wife, Flora, opened in 1909 and was once a luxury hotel for the well-heeled Edwardian-era tourists. The hotel boasts having such guests, not only King, but also Theodore Roosevelt, Bob Dylan, Cary Grant, Doris Day, Billy Graham. Um, so The Shining was also heavily influenced by Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, Edgar Allan's Poe, The Mask of the Red Death, and Fall of the House of Usher, and Robert Morasco's Burnt Offerings. The story has been often compared to a story, The Inn. Prior to writing The Shining, King had written Roadwork and The Body, which were both published later. 
The first draft of The Shining took less than four months to complete and was able to publish it before the others. The title was inspired by the John Lennon song, Instant Karma, which contained the line, We All Shine On. Bill Thompson, King's editor at Doubleday, tried to talk King out of The Shining as he felt after Carrie and Salem's Lot, King would get typed as a horror writer. King considered that a compliment. So if you like The Shining, um, there, there's, I'm going to point you in the direction of, of some other books. Um, certainly, I would say just go for Dr. Sleep. It's the sequel. It picks up um, where the book left off uh, years later with uh, Danny as an adult um, dealing with uh, the pain caused, uh, caused to him uh, by his father and, and the life that he's living now. But, uh, you know, this, this novel was... Uh, dedicated to one particular person and that is his son Joe um, who happened to go on and become an incredible writer of his own um, Joe Hill he decided not to um, you know take his his father's more famous last name he wanted to do it on his own and I have to say that his books are are absolutely incredible he has a can, you can definitely tell he's the son of Stephen King but his his writing has a has a different style um, you know, and, and his, he's not as prolific in the sense that, you know, Stephen King is able to write, you know, a book a year, um, sometimes two books a year. Um, you know, Joe Hill, he doesn't have that kind of speed, but when his books do come out, they are never, they have not been a disappointment. So anything, anything by, uh, Joe Hill, I would strongly recommend, uh, you know, you could start with Heart Shaped Box, which is a great story of a uh, of an aging rock star and the uh, the haunted um, suit of um, an ex girlfriend's um, father. Who it, okay, I that's not a really good way to sell the book, but it, it's it's a road trip um, in which a main character has to kind of discover himself while being pursued by the the ghost of uh, the father of of an ex girlfriend and. It's great. It's great. I mean, that was his first novel, um, and then then he then he followed it up with with Horns, um, which has now been um, adapted into um, a movie starring Daniel Radcliffe from Harry Potter. And I really hope for Joe Hill's sake that it is a smash hit. The novel is beautiful. It is so sad and it's funny. Um, it, it it's darkly comedic um, and very very tragic and it's beautiful. And in terms of and, and one reason why it's um, also kind of thematically linked a little bit to The Shining is because uh, it, it, The Shining, of course, deals with, with alcoholism. Um, and Horns starts off with a, a great description of a hangover. Um, and uh, then you have the, the latest book, Nosferatu, which actually kind of ties into Stephen King's works a little bit. So, I mean, you, I, I would strongly recommend that you pick it up, and I think that you'll enjoy it as a Stephen King fan. Um, and then if you're going to read these, I, you, you really have to read his, his book of short stories, 20th Century Ghosts, which are beautiful. Um, some of these stories um, I mean, it, are, are just incredible. There's one story that will make you cry, and the main character is an inflatable doll, pop art. It is one of the most beautifully written stories ever, ever. And in fact, it actually made me think a lot of A Prayer for Owen Meany. Um, so uh, Joe Hill, go check out his works or uh, Lock and Key, uh, his, his comic book. Um, the guy is a serious talent. And um, 
again, Stephen King had dedicated The Shining towards him. And, uh, you know, if, if, you know, Stephen King had, had discussed, uh, you know, anger towards his children, well, it looks like he's, he's done okay as a parent as well as a writer. So those are the inspirations. Go out and, uh, and definitely check them out if you have not done so already. And in terms of Joe Hill, I, I might actually at some point um, kind of slip in some reviews of, of Joe Hill stuff in here just to, to break up any monotony if there starts to be monotony or if I start to, you know, get tired of, of rereading the same books that I've, I've read over and over and over again. I'll go back and reread books that I haven't read over and over again. So there you have it. There we are. We've made it to the end again, my friends. Uh, so stay tuned next week as I review Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece film adaptation of The Shining. And I will give you a definitive answer. What is better, the book or the movie? Thanks for joining us this week. I'll see you next week. Same King time. Same King channel. Stephen King. you